Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Waco's legend bearer, Helen Marie Taylor. Young pioneer doctors had three things in common, long beards, high boots, and guns on their hips. <laughs> <laughs> Helen Marie Taylor comes from a long line of Wacoans. Her family's history in the area dates back before the Civil War. She talks about growing up in Waco, acting on Broadway and in Hollywood, and starting the Taylor Museum of Waco History. So I said, Aunt Mary, why didn't you marry Pat Nath? She said, oh, darling, he stepped on my toes when we danced. <laughs> <laughs> and now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. I'm very excited to have a living legend with us today, uh, and that's Miss Helen Marie Taylor. There's all sorts of things that Miss Taylor could talk about. Uh, she's been involved in politics and preservation and drama, a, an actress and a director and horses. We, we could talk about all sorts of different things with Miss Taylor, but she's also been very involved in, she's a Wacoan, a native Wacoan, whose family was very involved in Waco's history early on. And she herself took great efforts to preserve Waco's history and present Waco's history. And so she's in town. She's, she's, she's living in Virginia now, but she's in town for a couple of weeks. And so we're so excited to have her live in studio. Yes. So, Miss Taylor, there's all sorts of questions we could ask you. And uh, I know you, and, and as you said, you're not a historian, but you're a legend carrier. Legend bearer. Legend, legend bearer. bearer. Yeah, I like that legend bearer. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely welcome. <laughs> well, I, I'd, I'd like to start. Tell me a little bit how far your connection to Waco's history goes back. Let's start with that. All right. Um, my great-grandfather, Dr. John Sears, from Appomattox, Virginia, was a medical student at the University of Virginia back in the 1840s. And he kept hearing all the stories about Texas, Texas. Everybody was going to Texas, GTT. <laughs> so he decided that he was going to check Texas out himself on his summer holiday. So he came to what is now Waco and found nine log cabins, I think the story was, <laughs> about where the Hilton Hotel is or the suspension bridge today. And he was astonished. Her grandmother later told me that you could be on the east side of the Brazos River and see this gushing spring coming out of this bank. And it was icy cold, as the 
who was it, the Santa Fe group said that it was, it was almost as cold as ice and if only they had a little brandy and uh, they could have had a nice toddy. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, as a, he was astonished at the beauty of the place, so we decided he must have been there in May <laughs> mm-hmm. when the flowers were out. And uh, he saw that great gushing spring, which accounted for why everybody came there, and the friendly Indians, the Iwako was just around the corner. But what most attracted him was these countless springs that were everywhere. And then, if that was not captivating enough, he found the warm healing springs. And so he thought, what a wonderful place this would make for our spa, a healing center. Mm-hmm. So he vowed he was going back and finish his medical training in Virginia or wherever, and then he would return to practice medicine on the banks of the Brazos River. And Grandma said that he founded the Waco, the McLennan County, and the Texas Medical Association with his medical colleagues, served as president of all three sometime during that time. And in his uh, memoirs, he wrote that their young pioneer doctors had three things in common, long beards, high boots, and guns on their hips. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) And that's how my grandmother happened to be the second white child born in Waco. Anyway, grandmother was born in 1855, and little Kate Ross was born in 1851. So your grandmother's name was? Sally Sears, and later Mrs. Joseph Willis Taylor. Okay. And and her doctor, Dr. Sears, had a lot to do with the, not only medicine, of course, little happenstances that, that came about in my life, was every time I would come to Waco, all the time I grew up in Waco, I would go down to the old First Street Cemetery. And if you go and look at the cemetery, look for the biggest tree in the cemetery, and that's our tree. And the reason is that land was part of my great-great-grandfather, Davis Gurley's uh, land. He had two daughters, and one married Dr. John Sears. Mm. So they got a portion of his land, and that portion was where the Duncan Kennard house is. It was right next there. It went down to the river. As a doctor, he decided that it was time to stop burying people in the backyard and that we had a large enough community that we should have a community burying ground. He was a member of the Odd Fellows. What is the Odd Fellows? It was a, it was a fraternal association. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What made them odd? <laughs> I, I don't think they used odd in the term that we in the way that we would use odd. Oh, well, I hadn't yeah. thought of it yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Oh dear, you've yeah. introduced a new idea. Well, anyway, the Odd Fellows was a masculine organization. And again, I think do gooder group that was mm-hmm. responsible citizens. And so he brought that up before the group saying that he thought that the Waco community was large enough to have a community burying ground. And uh, they said, well, where would we have it? And there was some discussion. And he said, well, I have land that goes down to the Brazos. And we've already started burying our people down there. And it has beautiful, all those beautiful five, 600-year-old oak trees. And I have plenty of it. I'd be glad to make some available if you all decide that's what you'd like. And so after some discussion, they decided that was what they would like. Went down and looked around. And someone brought up the idea that if it was going to be a community burying ground and they were going to buy the, purchase the land from him for that purpose, that they should then give it to the city of Waco on condition that it would have permanent upkeep. And so people began burying their families there. And it, for a long time, it was our primary burying ground. 
and a lovely one because of all those wonderful trees mm-hmm. and being right on the river. So as a little girl, because our people were buried, they just naturally buried under the biggest oak tree because they were the only ones in the beginning. And I would go down there, and I loved to get up in that oak tree and prowl around. I love graveyards anyway. They've never had a sad connotation to me. They've always been very friendly and family. And I have more the the attitude that the families used to have when they'd all gather and have a, an annual cleaning up. Yeah. All at the same time. So they could, they could uh, visit with one another and share experiences mm-hmm. and families. When they outgrew that, and he had two daughters. One daughter married Dr. John Sears, and the other daughter married my other grandfather, <laughs> Joseph Willis Taylor. Angeline Gurley married Dr. John Sears. One of the legends about Mr. Fort was that he was a handsome and meticulous man and that he led that wagon train, which was the great influx of sort of cultured society that came in with him, in a white linen suit, always. (laughs) (laughs) And if the white linen suit ceased to be white, it got changed to another one. And so he was legendary for this white linen suit. Well, he had two little girls, and grandmother said that the two little daughters there at Fort House were the most popular little girls in town when never before arrived a sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) And every little girl wanted to go over and spend the afternoon with the little Fort girls so that they could all make dresses and they had patterns and all that kind of thing. So that's how the Taylors entered into your your line. Uh, the, yeah. uh, uh, Davis Gurley had two daughters. Mm-hmm. In other words, my grandmother and my grandfather were first cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that will explain yeah, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were slimmer pickings back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, especially if you're talking about when he came to Waco, there's only nine log cabins. Yeah, there's, there's not a big D- Don't let my grandmother hear you say that. <laughs> when, when she married Joseph Taylor, they said, why are you marrying Joe, Joe Taylor? Because he's from the best family in town, mine. <laughs> and the other one said, no, it isn't. It's because you wanted grandma- well, another one of grandmother's quilts. And they're, they're marvelous quilts, all, all these children and grandchildren. And she made one for every little newcomer. They had a large number of slaves. And I remember grandmother saying that they had 60 women working in the loom room alone. Grandmother, she said, grandmother had a husband and one son, but she was responsible for meals for 159 people three times a day, all their clothes, taking care of them, and she had a little old medicine satchel. Mm-hmm. And every morning she'd go through the quarters to see if everybody's all right and what she could do. And and she said, it was, uh, we loved going to the quarters because they always had a great big iron pot filled with black-eyed peas and what we call the black-eyed pea liquor. Mm-hmm. And there was a dipper there, and everybody could come by any time and take a dipper of the black-eyed pea soup, <laughs> and they loved them. When they made cornbread, and she said the only thing we didn't like was our nurse wanted to take us by, and we could have the black-eyed pea soup, but she wanted to take the corn cornbread, the hard corn. She wanted to chew that up in her own mouth and then put it in our mouths, and we <laughs> didn't like that. We liked to do that better. <laughs> And so grandmother said, but you see, dear, they were closer to nature than we are. Happened, she was telling me this story. There was a robin's nest just outside her, her window. And she took me over and talk about education and passing things on. She said, look at this mother bird. The mother bird has gone out and gotten the 
food for her little baby birds, and they're their little mouths wide open. But she's put it in her mouth first, and then when it's kind of dissolved, then she puts it in there. And that in our nurse was just closer, closer to nature. Mm -hmm. It was such a sweet way. Now, how did the war impact your family here? They had this one son, and they didn't know what in the world. My grandfather, Joseph Willis Taylor, and they didn't know what to do about educating him because they'd lost everything. They were totally penniless. And so an aunt wrote to, to Tennessee and said, we don't know what to do to educate young Joe. And she wrote back, all the ragged rebels are sending their sons to Lee at Washington College. Think about that. Well, they didn't have any money, so, that, so what they did was they, they leased out their farm, and they became boarders. My great-grandmother said, you should say, I was emancipated. <laughs> she was out. They were, they were making soap, had one of those big round pots, and she went out to supervise and look at things, and her skirt blew into that fire and caught her on fire, and it almost burned her right arm off, which had to be amputated. And she died a few days later. Mm. Just broke my grandfather's heart. He was the only son, and all the time he was at uh, Washington College, she, she wrote. And I remember, I said, if you write, invite me to your house, I'm going to tell you right now, don't put me in a room that's got letters with little rib ribbons around them in the dressing table drawer because I'll read every one of them. <laughs> but that was the way I learned about them, mm -hmm. you know, and how they became alive to me. These letters back and forth while he was at school. And then everybody, everybody yeah. writing, and you know how they didn't have enough stationery, so you'd write this way, and then you'd write this way, taking advantage of every speck of page. And I can remember one of them said, I am so S-O-O-O-O, sleepy, S-L-E-E-E-P-Y, I must say goodnight. <laughs> Just like having her there in the room with you, you know. Uh -huh. Well, anyway, he uh, it was a big adventure because Joseph Willis Taylor had never even been out of Waco much, much out of the county and out of the state. And then to go up to the legendary Robert E. Lee, and whom they all adored, we were kind of kin to them. And he, he, he in his 72nd year, he sat down in his office one night to write his memoirs. Oh, if only he had finished it. Well, anyway, he got there, and when he got to Lee, Lee examined every boy personally. And when he got through examining my grandfather, he said, well, son, I think you could shoot the nose off of a squirrel at 100 yards, but <laughs> you're right poor on your sums. You're right poor on your sums. <laughs> Math's not very good. <laughs> yeah, and so he said, but I'm going to suggest you live with us. And Rooney is very good with arithmetic. He'll help you with your lessons. So gra grandfather had the rare good fortune of actually living in the house with Robert E. Lee his first uh, year. And the second year, he was out with the rest of the kids when Lee died. So then he was a part of the honor guard of the students. And he kept a journal of two weeks, that period, when the death and all of the, 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 the uh, eulogies that came in and the important people that came in. And I don't think many people know that uh, how or expected that he would be so popular on both sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know it was a surprise to me to find that one of the major New York papers uh, had recommended that he run for president two years after the war. Ms. Taylor, I also know your father was active in politics. What do you remember about that? Daddy, um, uh, he created a political party called the Independent Party. 
he was the first man in Texas to come out for a third term for Franklin Roosevelt. My grandmother, on the other hand, was the only live, breathing Republican that I ever knew. <laughs> and she became a Republican at the age of 86. <laughs> and she said, well, dear, your father's too young. He does not realize. Now, grandmother was a full-grown, mature woman when the Bolsheviks came in, in New York, took over the labor unions, went out to Hollywood and all of that, and she saw all of that. And she said, your father does not realize that what Franklin Roosevelt is doing is pumping this socialist virus into the politic, and it is not in the best interest of this country. And he didn't start it. It started with Woodrow Wilson, she said. I was little. I adored both of them. I just listened. It's hard to believe I ever just listened, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I did. And Daddy didn't care. He just knew that millions of people were out of work, mm. and they needed to get food on their table. Yeah. And he didn't care whether you were painting a mural in the local post office or digging a ditch for the dam. And that day that I was at the First Street Cemetery and Harry Province stopped them, those men were sitting around there on their tractors, and they said, who are you? And I said, I'm Helen Reed Taylor. Whose daughter are you? And I said, Howell Taylor. Oh, Howell Taylor. And I am telling you, I never had, I was, I didn't think I could contain the buttons on my shirt. I was so pleased because he'd always taken up for the poor end of the group. Mm -hmm. And we had the highest electricity bills and rates in the state. And he'd go after them. And, and, he, and so grandmother said, well, he's alienated everybody of any importance in the town. <laughs> <laughs> About the um, political business, I had no personal evaluation of that. But when I signed up for Baylor, it was to be a pre-law student. Mm -hmm. And my roommate said, you have to take this class. It's called Speech, Speech 106. I said, what is that? And she said, well, it's kind of a drama class. It's a, and there's a really amazing guy that's the professor. His name is Paul Baker. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm a pre-law student. She said, well, that would help you with, you know, a speech. <laughs> I signed up. And I must admit, she was right. Paul Baker was an unusual character. He promptly signed most of us up as his admirers. And, and he taught us a lot about immediately what it meant to be a student of Paul Baker. We're pretty slow, pokey little Southern kids, and we kind of show up on time, kind of. If you came into his classroom one minute late, you found the door was not only closed, it was locked, and you couldn't get in. So one of the first things he taught you was that it was a privilege to be in there, and you better be there all the time, and he would not tolerate the least deviation from that. So that was a wake-up call. And then he was very peculiar because he'd say, um, uh, Sloan, be a walnut, sir, sir be a walnut. Uh, well, um, what, what do you mean be a walnut? Well, what is a walnut? It's a nut. Well, what kind of a nut? Well, it's a, um, it's a nut. It's, it's hard, hard to open, hard to get at. Well, what does it look like? Well, it's wrinkled and it's kind of brown. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So you, you give me a person that's going to be kind of wrinkled and kind of brown and hard to get to know or to be associated with? What, what's the inside like? Well, it's got a nice, nice nut. So the nice guy is pretty nice. And all of a sudden, like that, he had played it before us. We didn't have any idea. A character, examining a character, really looking it up and down for body language and all that. And that, believe me, this was a, unusual. So, so, Randy, just to spoil what's going to happen a little bit, Miss Taylor 
becomes a award-winning actress in New York. Thanks to uh, the walnut? And it started with this. It started with this. I started this. listening it, to a boy yeah. being a walnut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, you know. He, now, we all got to where we were just hanging on every new thing. And I was the receptionist, the first receptionist in Pat F. Hall. When Pat... Uh, when the building was completed. When it was yeah. completed. Mm -hmm. I was Pat Neff's um, receptionist. Just between you and me, the reason I was a receptionist because I didn't have sense enough to be a secretary because I couldn't type and I couldn't take shorthand, but I was pretty and had nice manners. But more important than that, Pat Neff had dated that aunt that lived so long, you know. Mm -hmm. He never got over it. And uh, so I said, Aunt Mary, why didn't you marry Pat Neff? And she said, oh, darling, he stepped on my toes when we danced. <laughs> <laughs> At Baylor, we had a beautiful little girl there named Bonnie Ruth Lawson, and she was a beauty queen, and she was certainly one of our dear favorites. She had caused a great stir because she won some kind of a beauty contest, and that entitled her to go to Hollywood to have a screen test. And, oh, my goodness, when she came back, we just couldn't get enough of hearing everything about it. And she said, well, any pretty girl can probably get a screen test, but if you're not prepared for it, and I wasn't, you may not get a second one. And so you should never take them up on a screen test unless you're prepared. And so we listened to all that. And here's old Paul Baker over there with his, you know. And, and Oh, and he told another class, not mine, another class, that I was the most talented student he had ever had, that he didn't know if I had anything behind those blue eyes, but he thought I'd probably end up marrying some old good Texas boy washing dishes three times a day. But if I did, it was a real loss to the theater because I had talent. Well, they couldn't wait to come and tell me this. Now, I had no way of judging talent at all. You tell me about the law and lawyers and things like that, maybe, but for him to say something like that made an, an impression on me mm -hmm. because I wished him well. I later f found he was an absolute fraud, but a real skilled one. And I thought it was wonderful that he didn't go into politics because he could have done real, real harm in this country. But what did it matter if he was a you know, crooked, uh, slick, uh, would-be director, producer? <laughs> so, so now you went to the Royal Academy in 48? Uh, let, let me go yep. just a little okay. bit. But right. I was there in, in New York. And, and there, Bill's mother and father were taking us everywhere to dance and to the opera and the ballet and carriage rides in the park. And, and we went to the Waldorf and we were having dinner. And there was a couple of couples sitting at a table next to us. And when they started, they got up to start to leave, they came over to the table and said, we've been trying to find out to decide whether you were the parents of the young man or the young woman. So this pleasant conversation, we're the parents of the young man. And they chatted a bit. And then when he started to leave, one of the men handed me a card he said, if you decide to stay in New York, you look me up. And we looked at the card, and it was John Robert Powers. And there was only one modeling agency in America at that time, and it was just John Robert Powers. And so, my goodness, that was quite a thing. And the man that was with him, and the couple was with him, he was the former governor of New York. So it was an interesting little happen. So, well, after Bill was shipped overseas, his mother told me that she had been through the same phase I was in. She'd fallen in love with New York and wanted to stay there, and that you didn't have to stay in an expensive hotel like the Gotham at $6 a night. That there was so expensive. Uh, over on Madison Avenue at 55th, just a block away, they had the Windsor Hotel, and they had ladies' floors and men's floors, and you could get a room there for $17 a week. And up on the top, you had a roof garden, and you get lunch for 45 cents and a tip for a dime. <laughs> 
And uh, she said, and and the Bergdorf Goodman was the finest women's store in New York and most elegant things ever, really, never been anything like it. And she said, you couldn't. I got a job there as a model, she said. So I thought, well, that's what I'll try to do. So I went over. I did go to see Mr. Powers, mm-hmm. and uh, they opened the door, and there he sat like you at front. And he looked at me, and he said, good heavens. He said, you know, I'm famed for my long-stemmed American beauty roadies, and honey, somebody sure clipped your stem short. <laughs> <laughs> I was five feet two. So you were sitting down when he gave you the card. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Somebody sure clipped your stem short. He said you could never be a model. You have to be at least five feet ten. But you'd be perfect in the movies. Every man wants to look big. And so he's very keen on getting a shorter. And you know, Marlon Brando, he was not tall at all. I mm-hmm. later became a friend of mine. You nearly always got Marlon up on a step or two. And so I, I, he said, I've got a friend over at Fox, and I'll get you a screen test. Uh, 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 uh. Bonnie, don't take it unless you're ready. Well, I didn't. I really wasn't ready. I'd never, and so I decided that the most wonderful, sweetest, dearest play in New York was Life with Father. And it had been a hit for years. Yeah, but we didn't know that. It was just we just loved it. And it the little girl in it that comes to visit the family was my grandmother. Little straw hat, peppermint striped dress, bustle. I knew that little girl. So I decided that would be the part I'd try to get, but I didn't know how you got a part. And so I went to the front door of the Empire Theater. Nobody answered, nobody there. So I thought, well, being a Texan, I'll go around to the alley and knock on the back door. <laughs> <laughs> I went around the back and knocked on this old big old tin door old fellow named George came to the door. He was a retired vaudevillian actor. Yep. And I said, well, I, I wanted to talk to someone about playing the part of Mary Skinner in this play, and I thought maybe you could t- uh, tell me who I see. What? Just just to repeat that again. And I did. And he said, well, honey, I, I kind of feel like I'm giving you the first advice you've ever had. <laughs> Don't go to the back door. Go to the front door. I did. And nobody was out there. Well, all right, you go up to the sixth floor. Oscar Serlin is the um, producer, and you go up there and tell him George sent you. So I went upstairs, and I waited my turn, a whole bunch of girls, and this fella said, what's your name? I said, Helen Marie Taylor. What have you done? And I said, well, I, I've had a speech 106. at Baylor University yeah what else and I said well I had a walk-on part in a scene with Lady Macbeth what else and I said well not much else and he said young lady he put down his bed do you know that this is the longest running play in the history of the American theater it's in its sixth year we're getting ready to cast for the seventh year and did you know that that part that you're asking for is the most coveted role ingenue role on Broadway I didn't know what an ingenue was. <laughs> what makes you think you could play that? I said, I, 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 I could play that part. And I was thinking, old Baker had said, she's got more talent than anybody I've ever had. And he was seeing it. I, so I later had not much respect for him, but I have a lot of indebtedness to him for that. And so he said, well, I'll be, you know, I kind of think you could. All right, suppose we cast you as the maid. And then you could maybe be the understudy for this. I said, no, I couldn't do that. Now, this was back in 1944, and a lot of kids, you, me, everybody else, has had jobs as waiters, and not then. If you were, if you were Howell Taylor's daughter, you did not even play a maid. <laughs> hmm. And so I said, no, no, I, I only want to play. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. If she doesn't go on one night, then you'd get to go on. That'd be your big opportunity. And I said, you don't. 
couldn't do that. And she said, well, would you go on the road? Yes, sir, I would. On the road, big, big, long tour. Yes, sir. And he said, all right, I really think you could play this part. And uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a postcard and let you know when we're having the auditions here and you come on over. Well, I, I went back, wrote my mother to say I was not coming back to Baylor, but I was going to get correspondence courses so I'd keep up the law school, but not to be concerned. And got hold of grandmother and and so all of a sudden, I get the card, and I go back to the theater, go back to the stage, and there's old George there, and he opens up the door, and there must have been 300 Mary Skinners in there. Wow. You know how when you cut out paper doll cutouts, you open them up, they're all exactly uh, they the same. They all extend, yeah, they, they look the same. blonde, brunette, redhead, all oh. Mary Skinners, all <laughs> exactly like Breck Shampoo Girls. And so I thought, good heavens, they're here for my part. <laughs> so we went in and they teamed me up with a little boy named uh, Sandy Camel who had just come out of Princeton and he'd been on a long road show with Alfred Lunt and Linda Fontaine. They were the big dramatic couple of the period. And so um, uh, there must have been 300. They sent 150 home that day. And then the others were coming back the next day. Well, the next day we sent 75 home, cut them in half. Next day was 20, down to 25 and we had survived. Sandy later told me that I had corrected him on the reading of one of his lines, and he'd just come back from a national tour, you know. But anyway, that we read, and finally, Oscar Serlin and Bretain Windust was the director, and jo- Jim Jolly, a British uh, stage manager, they were all lined up out there in the theater, dark, and we were reading, and Serlin said, Mr. Campbell, are you sure you want to go out on another national road show? Yes, sir. I understand you've just come back with the lunch, and uh, yes, sir. Well, all right, you come up to the office in the morning about 10 o'clock. We'll have the contracts ready for you to sign. And then he got up, Wendis got up, and Jolly got up, and, and they all started to go up the aisle. And I must have been standing there like that. And, and Serlin turned around, and he said, and I suppose you want to come too. <laughs> oh, yes, sir. <laughs> I thought they were going to die of laughter. They were holding on to the chairs. I must have just been radiating naivete, innocence, all the rest of it. But I was that little girl. As it turned out, I, I, they had had seven years, and I got the best reviews of anybody that had ever played it. Little Teresa Wright, you remember her at all? Teresa Wright, the actress, but she was the first one. And, mm. But it's a sweet part. What a way to start off in the theater. Truly, with with four or five little boys in the cast being schooled behind stage and all that. I had been told by my boyfriend, Bill Veal, that the most beautiful movie that had ever been made was a French film called Meyerling, uh, Charles Boyer in, in a French cast. And if I ever had a chance to see that, that don't miss it. Well, this was during the war years, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were having less films, and some of the old films were being revived, and they had what they called famous old movies. And up there by Carnegie Hall, there's a little Carnegie movie house. And I couldn't believe it. There was Meyerling. And so I went up and got a ticket and went in. And uh, when I came out, uh, last one of the evening, I said, how long are you open? He said, another two days. I said, how many performances? Three, three every afternoon, evening. So I saw Meyerling nine times. <laughs> <laughs> That I, good. I can tell you that even what the sound of the hooves of the horses were. It was a truly beautiful film. And Mary Pickford had fallen in love with it. And she brought she bought the rights to produce it in English, but she had to wait 14 years. And when we got out on the road in Life with Father, and I started getting very good reviews, a little blurb in the paper said that the 14 years were up and that she had thought she probably would put Charles Boyer to play the prince again. And she was looking for a newcomer in the part of Maria. (laughs) 
a newcomer. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, now, how can I get hold of Mary Pickford and let her know I would like to play that part? I <laughs> like that office visit when he said, if you said all you've done, you know. And so um, I'm a Texan. I looked up in the telephone book, no Mary Pickford. Then I looked up to see if United Artists, there was a United Artist, but they, of course, would not give me out Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pigford, or Charlie Chaplin's numbers. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I heard that Mary Pickford had wanted to play mother in Life with Father, but Sterling thought she was too old. But they had that correspondence in the office. So I'll call up the office in New York and just ask for Mary Pickford's number. I did. The secretary didn't know not to give it to me. <laughs> so she gave me the, the number from Mary Pickfair, and she'd remarried a fellow named Buddy Rogers, younger than she was, and just adored her. And they lived at Pickfair where the Pickford, and, you know. I called her, and I told her who I was and that I was in life with Father. Now I had something to point to anyway. And I said I had heard that she loved the part of the love life with father and that I had been playing Mary Skinner in that and that I'd gotten excellent reviews and that I'd read this about her wanting to have a newcomer for the part in Myerling and I was wondering we had a week off at Christmas would it be possible for me to maybe come out and see her it took three days to get from Cleveland Ohio to California in those days and three days back so if I had a week, she said, well, you better tell me when we're having the appointment. <laughs> and not much elasticity there. And I said, oh, well, that would be wonderful. And I said, I'll send you the copies of the reviews I'd had. When I got to Pickfair, Buddy Rogers came to the door, and he welcomed me. And then he turned around and said, Mary, she's here. And so she started down the stairs, and it was a landing. And I know now exactly what she was thinking. When she came to that landing and she saw me standing there, I was Mary Pickford at the age she would have been. Mm. So she identified completely with this little girl. And I was just doggone lucky because we were the same type, same size, five feet two. She said, well, since we talked, Life with Father has been sold to Warner Brothers. And I think if you're out here, I'll get you a, a screen test. But rather than doing it at United Artists, you should go to Warner Brothers because we don't know how long it's going to take us to put together this, but that might come up sooner. And I'll get you an agent. So she got me a fellow, Benny Medford. Had Ida Lupino that got $250,000 for a picture at that time, and a big picture, you know. I was going to get, once I got this, and of course, I Warner Brothers signed me up right away. Mine was $250 a week. I thought I'd gone to heaven at that, you know. <laughs> Same as Reagan had. That's when I first met him out there. He was just like the, he was just like the darling kid up the street, you know, so friendly and pleasant. So I was signed up, and I was to have coaching, which I'm sure I must have needed badly. Alan Ladd, I don't know if mm -hmm. you remember him, his wife was an agent, and she heard about me, and she asked me if I'd come and let her represent me, invited me to come out to Palm Springs for a weekend. So I went out, and of course, I don't smoke, don't drink, shy, not at home at all with the Hollywood crowd. They were all out at the swimming pool, William Powell and all this group, and, and having drinks. And, and so I was comfortable with books. So they had a nice library, and I was in there prowling around in the books. And the actor Muni had been in a play called Watch on the Rhine, and it, had, it was a war play. And it had won all, everything in London, in New York, so Hollywood bought it. And he was there making that film with Betty Davis which would get Oscars later. Mm. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. I, 
didn't mean to disturb you. I said, you're not disturbing me. I just like books. And he said, well, would you mind staying right here a minute? My wife and I were talking about you last night, and, and we want to talk to you. So he went away and he came back with his wife and invited me to sit down. And he said, young lady, I hope you'll allow me to be very, very frank with you. I am a star in several capitals of the world and have been for a long time. So I hope you'll take what I have to say with some seriousness that I know what I'm talking about. I've starred, I think he was Austrian, he said, I've, I've starred in, in France and England and New York, and the play I have now is a very big success. When my wife and I come out here for me to make a, a film, we lease a place for exactly the period of time the film is going to take to make. And we leave within a week after it's over with to leave here. We would never think of living in this place with these people. Nothing against them, but you don't belong here. You don't belong here. We've heard you had excellent reviews in New York and Life with Father. Our advice to you is leave here. Go back to New York to the legitimate theater. That's where you belong. You, don't, you shouldn't be out here. And, you know, I didn't like my, my theater experience at Waco was Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey and the Dog and Pony Show. <laughs> and I think during my growing up years, maybe the Barretts of Wimple Street came with the Ely of Gladiator or something like that. I had no theater background at all. Mm. So I was really taking the advice of people like Paul Baker and people that knew better than I was and Lil Bonnie. So they had offered me a part. Remember the Andy Rooney series with mm -hmm. Mick, Mick, Mickey Rooney? He was the son of the judge, and he had a bunch of little cute girls around mm -hmm. him, little oh, yeah. Rutherford and all that. They offered me one of those. I didn't want to be a little teenage girl with Andy Rooney. I wanted Myerling. And so then they offered me another one, and this one was a cigarette girl in a short skirt with a tray of cigarettes in a bar. <laughs> Didn't think grandmother would like that. <laughs> so I turned that down. And so if you turn down three, they could put you on suspension. So I went up to see Saliviano, and I said I had decided that I, I hadn't really been comfortable with the parts they had offered me. And he said, yes, and if you know, if you turn down a third one, we can put you on suspension for 12 weeks without pay. And I said, yes, and if I decline, I can break my contract. He said, yes, you could break your contract. And I said, and that's what I've decided to do. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon? You're going to break your contract? Yes, I've decided to do that. Looked around the other guy. Well, Miss Taylor... You know, Warner Brothers struggled along before you came, and I think maybe we'll be able to survive your leaving. <laughs> Young lady, good luck. <laughs> and so I left, and I went back to New York, and I remember getting off the train and going over and kissing the side of the Abercrombie and Fitch building or something. I was so glad to be back there. Miss Taylor, what are some of the first things that you did when you got back to Waco? When I got home, down here at Baylor, where the Mayborn Museum is and all this, there were about 400 houses down there beyond the old First Street Cemetery that had been slave quarters, and they still rented for maybe $3 a month or something like that. I know my mother owned two or three of them, and I found her down there. I was very embarrassed at Baylor, finding her down there on a rooftop helping to put the shingles on. I really didn't think that was very ladylike. Darling couple lived in one of this graduates of Paul Quinn College. Mm -hmm. He was an errand boy for Pipkin's Drugstore, and she was a school teacher. So I went down to call on them, talk to them, and to see where her school was, and to visit her classroom, and found a classroom full of buckets and pans. And I said, why do you have these here? And she said, well, see, our roof leaks. 
so we just leave them here so it'll catch the rain. She said, and you see, we don't have many. Once cotton season starts, I lose all my students anyway. They go to the fields with their parents. And uh, so we're here in the winter, and we just leave the plants here. And here they were, two college graduates like that, another little page turning. Mm-hmm. You started to see a side of Waco that you, didn't, you weren't aware. Never. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're fast-forwarding quite a few years, and you have the idea of, uh, establishing a local museum that can present some of this history. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, Bobby Barnes early on became one of the people I most admired because she told me later that her father was a doctor and he had two little girls, and the treat on Sundays was, was for him to drive them into Waco in the horse and buggy to see the pretty old houses. And as they would ride around and the pretty old houses were kind of falling down, she would say, Daddy, I'd I like to fix them up. And he said, you'll do that. When you grow up, you'll fix them up. You'll fix them up. And that was in her head, you know. So she did and got all the awards in Texas, I think, and a few of the national better ones. And just like Roger Conger was a little ahead of me, she was, I think she was probably Roger's contemporary. And there always a little, little, little tension between them because she liked the red brick house and the white column and the skirts. And he liked Fort Fisher and the guns and the cowboys and rangers. And uh, there was just one dollar, and they're trying to, both of them get at that dollar. They found it, the Historic Waco Foundation, you see. As the years went by, and age doesn't matter much, every time she would write me or call me about supporting some house or whatever, I'd always, even if I couldn't be here, I'd send her money for a few tickets so she could pass them out. I once went to Russia with her, and, and we traveled. We became very, very good friends, close friends. And so when McCullough House was opening, she invited me to come and speak. And by that time, I had done some different things myself that made me of some interest. She had also invited um, the fellow who was the head of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So when I got to the McCullough House, and when I was a little girl, I went to St. Paul's Church. And after church, I would go over and make mud pies behind the McCullough House. <laughs> house <laughs> in little leftover saucers and things I, uh, that old creek back there i loved had really mother nature sent a billion years carving that out you know mm-hmm. uh, well anyway she invited me to come and speak and i said with these captured um, preservationists you see and mm-hmm. uh, historic people i'll take advantage of this to say you're right here near the old abandoned barren spring school mm-hmm. it's just two or three blocks away and don't leave this area without driving by to see those wonderful trees the trees there are just they're some of the most beautiful in waco i gave this passionate plea and then i said i think that that old abandoned school would make a wonderful civic museum. It's on the historic Waco campgrounds. The uh, Freedmen's Bureau was built there, Mm -hmm. and it was later the Center for the African-American Community. Anyway, do go by. Well, the only person who was deeply moved by what I had to say was me. (laughs) (laughs) And I asked Spencer one day, Spencer Brown, I said, Spencer, did you all drive over there? He said, hell, and all that thing needed was a bulldozer. (laughs) We didn't go over there and see that thing. And I said, but the trees are just wonderful. Bobby, meanwhile, had grown up 10 years older than I was. When the Cotton Palace closed in 1929, she was looking forward to being one of those princesses. Daddy driving you into town to see the old houses and all this. So when it closed in 29, that was the end of her dream to be a part of the magical 
cotton pellets, and my grandmother started that. My grandmother wrote, wrote a letter to, well, everybody was talking about Waco being the cotton capital of the world, at least the way I heard it. And so she wrote a letter to the editor of the paper saying, if Waco is the cotton capital, the problem is the world doesn't know about it, and we ought to do something to... We need an exhibition. For exhibition. Yeah, yeah. And so that was brought up before the town fathers, and we've got a picture of them over there. I'm sure you've seen it with those big hats on. Mm-hmm. It, just a hilarious picture. And so it took off. Their house was a big Victorian house by this man, the architect, Larry Moore. Mm-hmm. So the way I asked Roger, what did you do with all those people? And he said, well, uh, your grandmother and grandfather would be the host house for a temple. And this one would be for uh, uh, Mahaya. And this one. So they had kind of little headquarters. And, and it, but it just took off. And everybody had a marvelous time. And then when it burned, mm-hmm. grandmother used to yeah. say you could see it for 40 miles. Well, years go by. And my father is finished law school at Baylor and University of Texas and out to Chicago and he's back and he is a part of this Young Men's Business League. Mm-hmm. Did I say that? He was writing the bylaws. Yeah, to revive Yeah. He was writing something and she said, what are you writing? And he said, the bylaws. And she said, why don't you, if you don't have a mission, why don't you mention this? And it takes off again. So she never gets over the disappointment of not being a part of that Cotton Palace. I was in it once when I was four years old. Olivet Pinto had a dance class and I was in it about this side. And uh, we and the, the director that I hired to be over at the museum, he came in one day and he said, I know where you were. And I said, what? And he said, you were in the Cotton Palace when you were about four or five years old. Maybe somebody, it was, here it was, all of it Pinto. And um, Bobby had been collecting information first and then costumes next. One of the most remarkable Christmas presents he ever had, and you've probably heard about this, Mrs. Pape, who was her neighbor in Cameron Park, loved Bobby and loved what she was trying to do and commiserated with her when she had problems with boards. One Christmas, she gave her a little Christmas present, and she said, Bobby, open your Christmas present. And Bobby opened it, and it was a blank checkbook. And she said, Miss Pape, what is this? And she said, for you to choose any house that you want to restore, and I will pay for it, and you're not going to have to be bothered with a board. Well, she couldn't believe that. It was just too good to be true. So she got in the car. She drove all around, and she went down to South Waco, where the Earl Harrison house was. By this time, the balconies had tin on them to make more rooms up there, and three or four families were living in it, and it was a, it was a wreck. So she called Miss Pape. She said she'd chosen the house. Miss Pape said, oh, I can't wait to see it, Bobby, and come by and pick me up and drive me down. <laughs> Bobby said she wrote, dr- drove Mrs. Pape down there, and Miss Pape saw it, and she said, "Oh, Bobby, um, uh, Bobby, um, oh, oh, Bobby, do you think that can be restored, Bobby?" And and Bobby said, "If I could get an architect to agree to do it, would you still do it?" Well, oh, oh Bobby. And so, of course, she got an architect and eventually cut it in half and moved it up to North 5th Street in the middle of one night. And so Bobby had the great pleasure of seeing that being developed. Mm -hmm. Finally, there was a board, and she was collecting now because she had a place to put all these costumes from the Cotton Palace. And she had them all over the house. But when the house got really done... The people on the board wanted to furnish it with furniture, not all her, her yeah. things. So she wanted to play. Well, she had no place to put them. The, the historic Waco Foundation uh, that she was a founder of had a little, you know, little house down there. The, Hoff, the Hoffman ha- Hoffman House. Hoffman Elsa. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was no place. She said, we, we burned up in the attic up there with our heads down like this, just trying to 
keep things in there. So she, when I said this, I agreed to drive at the McCullough opening. I agreed to, uh, to drive the president of the, or the chairman of the National Trust for Historic Preservation to the airport. I had an ulterior motive. I wanted to drive him by that school. And when he saw it, he said, and I says, Indian Campground, Freedman's Bureau, First Log Cabin School for the Blacks. He said, we don't always have money for Indians, but we do now. My advice to you is get that property, block up those windows, get somebody to examine your roof, be sure your roof is okay. Then you block up the windows, and then you quietly start buying the property around it, because the minute you say it might be a museum, everybody will jack the prices up, and then you won't be able to get the adjoining property. And he said, another thing's going to happen. You won't know, but one day the telephone will ring and it will be somebody that's got a collection that you never even thought of gun collection or costume whatever and he said you you won't have any problem filling that museum up bobby i knew with her costumes it meant so much and i was determined to choose a, a director that would be suitable for that and the valentine the man s m-a-n-n the man s valentine museum in richmond and the life and history of richmond had the second largest and finest um, textile collection in the country. Mm-hmm. And the fellow that was there, Bruce King, had just resigned as the assistant director to start, start his own company. So I asked him if he would come here and help us with this. He agreed to come for a year, and he stayed five. So he's the one who really helped me to restore it and do all the things that were right for the costumes. Bobby then got really busy. She, she, she wrote to everybody she could think of that had some of those dresses that now she had a place for. And I think she must have gotten about, we had 26 big garment boxes, acid-free boxes with acid-free paper. And then we exhibited about 20. I was lucky to have Bruce King, but he lived in Virginia on the water and had a beautiful place, and his wife was beginning to get tired of him being down here. He'd come down and stay a month and then be off for two weeks and back for a month and leave the, the, the behind for the bandit there. Now William Burney, he's been with us 23 years. It must have been a proud moment in 93 when you all opened up, 1993. Yeah. But we had a wonderful opening. We had a, yeah. a dinner on the bridge, yeah. And the men said, and, and, and the girls that were in it, they got the reenactors, Civil War reenactors, and it was in the summer, and those men all showed up, and they're on our grounds. They had tents and campfires in their uniforms, and they said, Mrs. Taylor, the Lord is shining on you because <laughs> it's this time of year, and we had to put a blanket over us last night. <laughs> it was hot, and it was cool. It was really cool. And to go around and visit them in their camps was a delight, a real delight. I it wanted, was an amazing project. I, I yeah. wanted a beautiful door in it and things like that, and, I, and it was a wonderful, wonderful place down in South Waco that makes anything. And I had them copy the door of the county courthouse uh-huh. and that dressed it up and then we had an old house cross street that had been condemned and Bobby said don't you let them get those columns those are solid wood now I know what I'm talking about they're solid wood and we're going to cut those in half and we're going to put them all around the auditorium and she did yeah that was wonderful yeah. and it dressed it up and the, we had to get the old boiler out the whole floor in the auditorium was rotted out daughters of the American Revolution liked to dance so they said they wanted a wooden floor to dance floor <laughs> and so we put in a floor for them Ms. Taylor, one of the highlights of the uh, Taylor Museum was the exhibit on the Constitution, We the People. Can you tell us a little bit of the background of that exhibit? 
uh, the Chief Justice Warren Burger of the Supreme Court had stepped down from the Supreme Court mm-hmm. to be the president of the Bicentennial Commission for the Constitution. That was another of the calls that came that they wanted to have every state have a exhibit on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And I had been collecting things all my life, had inherited some fun things that had come down in the family. I had, a, I had a grandmother that was George Washington's godmother and aunt, and a few things of hers had come down, just enough to whet my appetite as a little kid. And I had the only known silk embroidered vest of George Washington's, the, uh, the uh, ratification of the Constitution by Virginia, and Washington's letter to, to Tobias Lear and all this stuff. And uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who was my best friend, we worked together for 44 years and she was on the commission and she invited me to come up at their launching of the commission and she said who you want to sit with and I said I don't care she's put me next to Ron Mann Ron Mann had been the assistant to Warren Berger on loan from Boeing aircraft and they didn't get along at all and I said why Phyllis and she said you know how lawyers are they want case histories like this over and over and over and Ron is an idea a minute and that hadn't been done before and it's all creative and it just drives Warren Berger crazy but anyway I worked with them and I loaned them a lot of things for different places so when it was all over i had the vest for instance at uh, disney world they called and said well you, we, we got to break all this up where you want to send it i don't send it to me send it to waco texas and when i sat next to warren burger the dinner party in richmond i said mr chief justice what are you going to do with all that stuff that has been accumulating in your office the last five years he says sound like i'm about to get hit for it i said you are i've got my apron out i want you to tell your staff not to throw anything away put it in boxes send it to us and of course we're not going to end ours we, we hope to make it better and continue it everybody needs to know about the constitution kids keep being born and 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 so and he said and i guess you'd like uh, some constitutions too would you and i said yeah he said how many would you like i said how many have you got so i got three quarters of a million copies <laughs> everybody that's ever been in there has got it well as you can say i'm just tongue-tied when you get to waco history <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming in today Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. Ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated in the muddy Brazos below. Cross the Brazos at Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. In Waco, I'll walk straight in old San Antonio. Then the night came alive with gunfire. He knew that at last it'd been found. As the ranger's badge showed brightly, El Bandito lay on the ground. Carmella knew he was dying, that all of her dreams were in vain. As she kissed his lips for the last time, she heard him whisper again. Cross the Brazos and Waco, 
Say when I reach that 